does not intend to be personal financial advice. You should always seek the advice of a professional before making any financial decisions and always do your own research. Let's get into the episode. This is Black Millennial Money. This is Black Millennial Money Boy. This is Black Millennial Money. This is Black Millennial Money, where we talk about how you can make more money, keep more money, invest your money, and spend your money on the finer things in life, all from a Black Millennial perspective. I am your host, Joseph Wosu, and today I am proud to have Mr. Andy Iam on the show. But before we get into all of that, we've got some housekeeping. Some of you watching are still yet to subscribe to our YouTube channel, or, or Spotify, or on Apple Music, or wherever you're hearing my voice or seeing my face right now. You need to like, you need to subscribe, because it helps with wider distribution. If you've got even one second of value from this podcast, other people can too. So if you click like, if you click share, and if you subscribe, it helps distribute that to many, many more people. Also, we have recently launched a Patreon. We are on a mission to reach millions of people with transformational financial education, and you can be part of that. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Black Millennial Money and start supporting the show today. Now, this has been a show I've been trying to get in the books for a while. This is a make money episode. We have, we have been talking about making money. We've spoken about keeping money, investing money, and spending money. But today is a make money episode, and it's entitled How to Attract Angel Investors to Your Startup. And I know this is a key thing for a lot of people because I know there's a lot of business people on, that listen. There's a lot of side hustlers that listen. There's a lot of people that want financial freedom, and having your own business is one of the routes to getting there. And the man on the show today, Mr. Andy Iam, he's a father to a three-year-old daughter and a husband. He runs the Angel Investing School and has invested in startups such as Transculture, Trimit, and was one of the co-founders of Mixtape Madness. <sighs> Today, he works as a product consultant advising the likes of Investec Bank, Novartis Pharmaceuticals, and World First. He's on our show today. This is a pen and paper episode. If you haven't got one nearby, get it out. Mr. Andy Iam, thank you for joining us today. How are you? No, thank you for having me. And, and it's humbling hearing you introduce me. I should definitely hire you to introduce me everywhere I go because <laughs> it's a real good feeling when Joseph introduces you to anything. Um, but thank you. Thank you for your patience and for getting me onto the show. As you know, I'm a fan and a listener and a subscriber myself. So yeah, just like you said at the beginning, I highly encourage people to not only subscribe, but to go into your back catalogue and to listen to some of the, the many episodes that I've enjoyed too. Perfect, man. Great to have you on. And it's an absolute pleasure, truly, because I, I can feel the energy already. I can feel the energy already, man. Okay, so as usual, you know how the show works. We're going to go straight to the three things people should know about you. So, Andy, talk to the people. What should they know about you? Sure. So I'm an avid swimmer. You know, that goes contrary to what many people believe about this myth. I love swimming. I've been swimming for the last 12 years. I used to swim multiple times every week. Um, that's just my safe haven where I just lose track of time and I'm in flow state in the water. So I'm, I love swimming. Um, and it kind of re relates actually to a lot of my interest in Taoism, but that's another conversation for another episode. <laughs> um, secondly, I've lived and worked in South Africa, Hong Kong, San Francisco, Switzerland. Um, so I've had the pleasure and the privilege to actually experience what it's like to do business in these different countries and actually live in these different cultures, not just go there on tourism or holidays. Um, and that's really shaped a lot of my perspectives and how I see the world. 
Um, and then finally, not many people know, but I'm actually in a family of entrepreneurs. Like my mum started and runs a nursery in Ghana. My younger brother has a, a talent agency, AGM Talent. My older brother runs Mixtape Madness. So all of us are entrepreneurial and, and it's, it's clearly something that runs in the family. Okay, okay. So there's a lot going on there. So <laughs> you're not a black man stereotype. You can swim, swim. What's your, what's your go-to stroke? <laughs> I would say... Um, Either front crawl or breaststroke. I always alternate between those two. Like, I'm, uh, yeah, those are my two strongest. Okay, okay, okay. Have you tried to do any competitions or anything like that, or are you just like a leisure swimmer? I'm just a leisure swimmer because I love, I love just like I could swim for like an hour without stopping. But I'm not the fastest. I'm not the best technique. I just mm. enjoy the flow of just being in the water and just being in my thoughts and just meditating. Like it's a it's an experience I can't describe, like, but I think some people experience that when they're, you know, doing an ultra marathon or doing yeah, some yeah. sort of like, like tough mother. For me, swimming, swimming's that thing. Okay, okay. Now you've lived in hella time zones. Huh? You know, you ruled off quite a few just then. Um, mm. But you mentioned Hong Kong and San Francisco. What took you to Hong Kong, and then what took you to San Francisco? Yeah, so Hong Kong. Um, First time I went there was actually with World First, which was an interdealer money, and uh, which was an international money transfer startup. Um, and I was a product manager for their mobile product. And going into Hong Kong and Shenzhen in China, um, the kind of main goal there was to really learn what user experiences on apps and how they interact with mobile apps. So I went there to do a lot of user research, speak to customers, speak to e-commerce sellers, and then to learn a lot more about how we can do, for example, serve us our service and our app through WeChat and the apps out in China because the experience is so different to what we experience here in the West. So a lot of that trip was really to, to explore and just to empathize with customers and do some user testing with them to inform what we build for them. Um, so yeah, that was Hong Kong. San Francisco was a totally different experience. Um, I was working for a management consultancy called Elixir that just floated on the AIM market, um, which is actually quite rare for management consultancies. Um, and I started off with one of the partners, their innovation services. So that involved me going out to San Francisco for about seven months, uh, building relationships with world-renowned VC investors out there, such as Andreessen Horowitz, Sequoia Capital, Lightspeed Ventures, and Greylock Partners, and then connecting a lot of their portfolio startups to corporates in the UK and in Africa um, that could basically procure services for, from them. Um, and that business today actually run, um, earns about 50% of revenue for that consultancy. And that consultancy makes about 25 million a year. So you can see it's grown into a significant business. And um, I was proud to, to be at the start of that, I guess, entrepreneurial journey. Wow. So that's a solid contribution to a now AIM listed company. And wow. Okay. So it sounds like you're name dropping, but this is just the life you've lived, right? <laughs> yeah, kind of, yeah, it is, it is. But, but I recognize that, like, as a cisgender, black male, you know, born in London, there's a huge amount of privilege that I inherited and that I could access because I've been here, you know, and I have cousins back in Ghana who had the same potential that I did, but, you know, just don't have access to the opportunity. So I'm very, very aware of, like, using my privilege to address inequalities. And, you know, it's part of why I do even these, these shows like this. Okay. And lastly, entrepreneurship is in the blood from mm. your mom's or your brother's. Was it, was it a competitive environment at home or is it always collaborative, but always facing towards success? Do you know what? Always love and always collaborative, you know? So for me, I'm a middle child and I always followed my brother into like new domains. Like my brother would be the first to go to this school. 
then I would follow him. You know, my brother would be the first to take, take the leap, then I would follow him. And I think when you have like an entrepreneurial family, um, your competency and ability to take risk gets greater the younger you are as a sibling. Right. So my youngest brother is almost, he's so gung ho. He's so courageous in the risks that he's willing to take. I'm a little bit more reserved. And then, you know, my older brother is probably like the, the, the least risky out of all of us. And I think that just that confidence comes from seeing others ahead of you, a few steps ahead of you do that thing that you have an ambition to do. Um, and for me, like, you know, I've always just kept in my mind that my, my parents took the ultimate sacrifice from like sacrificing the life they knew in Ghana to, for, for this new life here in, in the UK so like me risking like a few months, maybe six months to try a business out is nothing in comparison to that life sacrifice that they've taken to come here. So I think relativity and perspective comes a lot into how we see entrepreneurship as a family and why we're able to, to take the leap and, and, and fortunately like execute on ideas and really succeed in growing businesses. Okay. It's interesting that you mentioned about your brother because um, one of the things that I've noticed and I've seen and in fact, my girlfriend's dad is a great example of this. So he grew up around his great aunts and everyone. He was the youngest of the youngest, basically. And when he, like one day, um, they realized he could cook. Not because anyone taught him, but because he was always there watching. So we kind of learned from osmosis from just being the youngest in that environment. Absolutely. And you see it, you see it in a lot of examples, like in football. Paul Pogba is the youngest of his brothers, but he's the best football player because he spent all of that time in that environment and mm. even before we get into the meat of the episode that's a lesson for everyone here if you can be the youngest in the room at any point make sure that's you because you're gonna you're gonna pick up so much game just from being around what's possible is just different when you start seeing 10 15 years ahead of you absolutely and that's one thing i want to kick to everyone that's in a career right now like sometimes we demonize careers we look down on working for someone or for working in a company but we need to change our perspective sometimes and recognize that we're getting paid to learn. Okay. Like when you leave university, that's the last time you, you one of the last times you have to pay over such a long period of time to learn and acquire knowledge. When you start working, it flips that dynamic. You're now actually getting paid and you're getting paid to learn. Right. So like, that's such a, that's such a privilege when you think about that. Right. So when you go into these companies, you don't go in there thinking, I just want to be my own boss. You think about what lessons can I learn and really extract from this environment, from communication skills to stakeholder management, to email etiquette, all of these small things compound over time and matter, you know? So it's really important that we don't just race into leadership or race into entrepreneurship as an escape. You know, we can have a broader discussion about that, but like I've benefited so much from learning and honing on my craft and beating on my craft from working with others and sometimes working for others, right? And it's a, it's a really important thing, I think, for a lot of people to reflect on and think about um, when it comes to self-awareness and, and their own journeys. You see that, ladies and gentlemen? You see the gems you're getting before we've even got into the main episodes? <laughs> okay. So Andy, Where do we go from here, Joseph? Where do we go from here? <laughs> we're I'm in your safe fig- hands. We're trying to figure out what angel investors actually do. So... Uh, Let's, let's strip it all the way back. You've been an angel investor. You've supported people get, to get angel investment. What is it that an angel, what is an angel investor in its simplest form to start off with? Sure. So an angel investor is usually an individual risking their own capital to invest in, in a new business. Mm. And it's, very, it's a very high risk because usually it's at such an early stage 
that they're investing in the business. It could be at an idea stage, maybe when they have an initial prototype, maybe when they just have initial customers. So an angel investor is just an individual that is willing to take that high risk of investing their own capital into a, into a new business that we sometimes call a startup. Okay, so when you look at the stories of some of these tech businesses and whatever, they've got like a friends and families round where basically um, if you're lucky enough to have it, your auntie or uncle gives you five grand here or something like that there, would those people be considered angel investors? Yeah, in those scenarios, yeah. Yeah, they would be. They would be. And, you know, it's an unregulated market. Like, angel investing isn't something heavily regulated. Usually, you know, there's some sort of description about someone as a sophisticated investor or a high net worth individual. But the truth is, if if Joseph wanted me to invest in his podcast and ask me for £10,000, we could draw up a contract and we can make that happen, which makes it hugely accessible. But that's part of the problem that is so accessible now, you know, it's literally at our fingertips with apps like Robinhood or Cedars and Crowdcube or, um, or, or Free Trade. Um, and because it's so accessible, a lot of people are not educated as to the risk and rewards that is associated with making that investment. Um, and that's actually the primary reason why I actually started the Angel Investing School to fill that knowledge gap and to educate people so they can make more informed decisions about getting started with investing into startups. Okay, so, Anyone can be an angel investor. It's just a matter of hopefully having the right paperwork in place and trusting the person who's delivering the work to do it. But how can you spot a good or a bad angel investor? And it's not to say necessarily that they're bad people, but some, but some people are just more ready to be angel investors than others. It's a great question. So the truth is, um, when I started my career about 11, 12 years ago, um, there's one piece of, of advice that's been timeless um, and it's still relevant today and it, it fits in with answering this question. Regardless what career you're in, we're all in the relationship building business. Angel investing and choosing a good angel investor from a bad one is really about nurturing a relationship with someone. Not a transaction of just investing in my company, but nurturing a relationship so you can understand how that person makes decisions, what that person values at their core, you know, what that person supports founders with. You know, are they hands off and an armchair investor? Or are they hands on? Can they help me grow into new markets like Germany? Can they help me grow into retail stores like Selfridges? You know, can they help me fill my knowledge gaps? Like, because I don't know what product management is or UX design is, you know, and can they help introduce me maybe even to other investors to help uh, close my round? These are the kind of questions you need to ask when assessing if someone's really a good fit for you and your company. But at the core, it's really about the relationship. Like, do you generally get along with this person and feel like you wanna, that they can add value to your journey? And in the end of the day, it's similar to a marriage. This is going to be a long-term journey that you have with this person for, you know, five years, two decades, depending on the type of business that you're growing. So you need to be amicable with this person and feel like, actually, I want this person to also benefit from the upside of me succeeding in this business, right? So these are the kind of questions that you need to be asking yourself to really assess whether this is a good fit for me or not. Okay, so you've taken angel investment previously. Have you got any examples of maybe when it went wrong and how you navigated that situation? So, so funny enough, actually, for the angel investment school and mixed state manners, I haven't taken angel investment, but I've, I've made angel investments myself and I've made mistakes when doing so. And one of the bad mistakes I made was, I'd say seven years ago, when a friend of mine introduced me to an opportunity to invest into an engineering company that was working in Central Africa. Um, and 
I fell in love with the passion of contributing to a business that's working on the continent. Um, as a member of the diaspora, as a Ghanaian, someone that originates from Ghana, I kind of fell in love with that story of really investing in an African startup. And I didn't do good enough due diligence. You know, I was early in the game. I put more money at risk than I could afford at that time at 5,000 pounds. And um, I ended up losing all of my money. And the primary reason was because there was a lot of contract risk and procurement risk with a lot of the, the uh, customers that he was serving, you know. So he was providing these engineering services to maintain a lot of infrastructure for uh, uh, companies in Central Africa. And actually, they weren't meeting his payment terms. So because of it, he, he ran out of working capital and ended up having to wind up the business. I didn't understand that business and I didn't understand that potential risk. And I went in a bit blind. So I like to tell people that, you know, that was my MBA, right? That's how much I paid to learn those lessons to get skin in the game, you know? And like looking at where I am today, those kind of lessons have been fundamental in helping me shape what I look for now in, in uh, startups that I, I want to invest in. Okay. And that's an, just to unpack what you've said there, because there were some technicalities that, that may course, not have always please, I need help with this. so when it comes to procurement risk what you mean by that is that you're supplying goods and services to other businesses so say you're selling shovels let's just say you're selling shovels but your contract to sell shovels is dependent on people having the money to pay you on time yes and let's say that i i need to it takes me uh, 30 days uh, 90 days to make new shovels but i only get paid every 180 days you know if i don't get money in quick enough i'm not going to have enough money to make more shovels if i can't make more shovels i can't afford to run the business so even though there's business that i've done with people if they haven't paid me on time then suddenly i'm in trouble and that's an interesting lesson because sometimes and i have this because i work for a big company at the moment um and i've worked for small companies in the past you can think that you've hit the jackpot when you get a contract with a big company until you realize it takes them 60 days to actually pay you for work or 30 days is like how do you stay open in that time so it can be very interesting to understand payment terms no matter what size of business you are with your clients and customers yeah and, and with that example in particular like looking back now knowing what i know now really that startup should have diversified their, their sales pipeline so that they were selling to much smaller and medium-sized players and not just the large players. Because the time it took, the, the business development timeline took at least 12 months to get these customers over the line. And then the time it takes to close the sale and get paid was too long. Whereas if they mixed it up and it had some smaller players that were paying them more regularly, they could have survived. Um, so these are lessons that I've learned along the journey that I just didn't know at that time. Okay. So again, breaking that down a little bit, if you're dealing with big companies, they're big, they're bureaucratic, five people need to sign off on something, and that can take six to 12 months to get a contract in place. However, Absolutely. if you can sell something to Abdul up the road, and you know Abdul on a first name basis, you could probably get that contract signed in three weeks and have that money coming in while you're waiting for the Nike contract or the Sky contract. That's going to take six months and 12 signatures and 15 meetings to get approved. You could, you could have had four Abdul contracts keeping you open until you've Precisely. got that full signature from the big company. Precisely. Well, we've transitioned a little bit, but coming back to angel investors, how much would you expect an angel investor to, to be investing? Because like, you hear some of the Facebook stories and people like that, they, they raised £100,000 from friends and family. But what so is it's, normal? 
so it's all about access, right? And if you are privileged enough to get access to a deal early enough, then you can write a 5K check, right? And Uber's, Uber's cap table, they, or for Uber, the startup, um, they had investors that invested as little as £5,000 when they were raising that friends and family round because those um, investors had access to Uber early enough. And at the time, they were actually taking a significant risk because Uber hadn't got the customers, hadn't really got started at that point. So to reward them for that high risk, they got the equity at that point of time and they were able to invest as little as 5000 You know, many of those investors actually followed in on, on, on numerous rounds of funding after that to make sure they topped up their fund rate funds but um, yeah, it can be as little as five thousand. And actually, into like today's where technology is taking us today, there's equity crowdfunding platforms like Cedars and Crowdcube, where you can invest as little as hundreds into startups. And you know, there's many startups we both know who have raised money on these equity crowdfunding platforms. Yeah, I've seen people raising money, and people have put in fifteen pounds, twenty-five pounds. So there are ways of doing it, but also the way in which you free people typically phrase angel investing is that it only applies to tech businesses but if you run an e-commerce boutique or something and someone invests 500 pounds for you to be able to buy some clothes or or to fulfill an order that is still an angel investment so you don't need to be a tech company the same if you have a nail shop and you're buying tons more shellac or acrylics or whatever it is fat freezing business you want to get the machine any little capital that you get from outside of your business in the early days could be considered an angel investment. So it's not just for tech businesses because a lot of the stuff we say, it sounds super techie, but you could have a barbershop. If someone helps you buy the chairs and the clippers, that's angel investing. Absolutely. Like Translate Culture, one of the companies that I'm a board advisor to, that's not, that's just a digital, a digital marketing agency. They're not a startup. They're not a tech startup, you know? Um, but yeah, so it, it, you're absolutely right. It could be a butcher's, it could be a florist. It's just a business that needs working capital and chooses to raise investment rather than debt, for example. Okay. And just to define working capital, Andy, how would you define working capital for someone who's never heard the phrase before? Yeah, to put simply, like to raise money to, to help me grow my business or run my business. And that covers what kind of expenses on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it could cover everything from staff costs to the cost of, let's say, office space, uh, the cost of certain supplies that you need. So if I'm a barbershop, I need chairs, I need clippers, you know, insurances. You know, if I'm trying to grow, it could cover the cost of those new hires, maybe. You know, it could cover the cost of some new licensing I need or cost of a new shop that I'm trying to expand to. So, yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be expansion capital to grow into a new shop, but it, it's just money to cover those kind of everyday costs. Um, but typically, you're gaining investment to to help you grow the business so that you can earn more and afford to, hopefully pay back that investor in a certain period of time. Okay. Now, are there different sources of funding you can get at the angel investing stage that maybe don't require you to give up a percentage of your company or guarantee someone X number of growth on their investment? Yeah. So I'll answer this in two ways in in how I've interpreted the question. So first, if I was a startup today, uh, especially during coronavirus, I'd be considering something like the bounce back loan, right? Which is up to 50K, no interest for 12 months and an interest rate of 2.5%. This is significant for two reasons. One, it's very rare to get a no interest loan as an early stage business because usually you're deemed as a very risky business and you have a high risk of defaulting or failing to pay back my loan. 
So it's, it's a window of opportunity during this coronavirus period to get a bounce back loan, which allows you to, to it's a loophole almost to, to, to be able to leverage that money. And you can raise up to 50K depending on your revenues. And when your business started, I think businesses have to be uh, have to have registered before March 2020. The second thing that's significant is the interest rate of 2.5%. That is ridiculously low. You know, that's comparable to like student loans. Usually a business loan is anything like 24% or 26% interest. Right. So when we're saying 2.5%, these are one of the cheapest loans you may ever get for your business. You know, similarly, the government has something called a startup loans, which are loans of up to 10K. Okay. And again, it's a very low interest rate, but it's up to 10K is the limit. You know, so that's another option that you have. Another is um, grants, right? So there's a, a website called Innovate UK. They're always publishing different grants that they're offering. You know, the, the big lottery fund is always um, offering grants for social enterprises or unlimited is another that offer a lot of grants for social enterprises. If you're in certain industries like the science and the arts, then you could go maybe to the arts council, for example, to get certain grants, you know, and then along with that, there's competitions, right? Where you could enter like a pitch competition and earn 10,000 pounds as a part of a prize, right? Or earn some sort of grant as part of the prize of winning that competition. And again, a lot of these are more industry specific. And then you said earlier on, like bank of mom and dad, like your family and friends are always an option, right? And sometimes we don't know how to activate our networks because it may require educating them before activating them, right? So it could be a former colleague that I worked with at Bank of, the Mer bank of America, who's been working there for seven years and has like five to 10K disposable income that they're actually interested in investing in a startup. I've just never had that conversation with them. And maybe they're just not aware that I'm raising. So we need to learn how to activate our networks on LinkedIn, on WhatsApp, you know, really go through the motion of having personal conversations, catching up with people, nurturing your relationships. So when it comes time where you may need a friends and family round, it's not transactional. You've always been in touch with that person. So those are just a few examples of different ways that you could raise capital to, to start your business. As I said, this is a pen and paper episode. If you haven't got your pen and paper out yet, you definitely need it now. Let me summarize some of those places. Can, can I just add one more? Go for one it. One more. I can't believe that I forgot this. That the most important one is proving that you have ability to sell and is revenue from customers that are actually paying because they value what you're bringing to the market. So if I'm a butcher's and I'm bringing bad meat to the market and no one wants to buy my bush chicken, it's a bad <laughs> sign, all right? I shouldn't be going to outside investors in that case. I should be asking myself, why aren't customers purchasing my product? And I need to solve that problem first because investors are not going to be interested in if you can't even answer that question. Perfect. Perfect. And off the back of that, actually, one of the best problems you can have in your business is too many customers. Because when you now go and ask someone for money, they're like, so there's a brand that's doing really well on Twitter. I'm not going to say the name, but the, the young lady sells dresses. She has had so much business coming through it that she doesn't necessarily have all the money to now fund her orders to get mm. to buy the fabric and all of that to make the dresses. Well, An investor is going to say that, oh, you've got 10 grand worth of sales. Oh, I see that people want this stuff. I will help you buy the fabric. If you've got no customers, it's harder to convince people to give you money. Absolutely. And in that situation, particularly, if that entrepreneur is savvy, they wouldn't even go to an investor. A cheaper option is to just get a loan. I'll go and get that bounce back loan that I was talking about and use that 50K to, 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 to fund me getting these dresses. Because I know that once I sell those dresses, I'm making 150K, right? Yep. So I don't want to give away equity. 
that's expensive because the more value that that I'm creating in my business, the more that person's going to win. Whereas if I take money from the bank, I just have to repay the capital plus some interest. That's much cheaper. Okay. Now, summarizing some of the places you mentioned before even <laughs> I forget. So you can get a bounce back loans. You can go to Innovate UK for a grant. You can go to the bank of mum and dad, your friends and family. And the key thing about friends and family is taking them on the journey, telling them the story of what you're doing. And this can apply with the same thing on LinkedIn. If you're doing something, post on LinkedIn regularly. So now when, when you go and start saying oh, we're raising money, people don't need the full context because they've seen it growing, they've seen it developing. Because if someone texts you out of the blue and asks you for money, you know exactly how you feel. I'm not giving you a penny sweet, even if you've got it. <laughs> but if you've seen someone grafting and trying to figure this out and they're like, hey, I need a little sum sum, maybe you may be more inclined to give them that money. So those are just a couple of ideas. Unfortunately, I can't remember every single thing that Andy just said, but this is why we have rewind buttons. So moving on. Other than money, Andy, what should you expect from an angel investor? And you touched, on the, you touched on some of this already in terms of relationships and help you access new people. But break it down for us. Other than money, what are positive yeah. things that an angel investor could bring to a business that someone looking at, listening right now or watching us may have only considered I need the money, but hey, hold on. If that person can help me do this, this and that, that would be super useful as well. Yeah, I think there's, there's three main value adds that you can get from an angel investor outside of the capital that they can provide to, to grow your business. One is just filling knowledge gaps, okay? There's certain known unknowns, like, you know, I know that I don't know anything about finance and I need to hire in someone to help me with finance. That's a known, a known, a known unknown, okay? And an angel investor can help you with that. But there's also unknown unknowns. Like, this founder doesn't realize that they're really good on product, but they don't know how to build a business, and they need executive coaching to help them level up and get to that level. Angel investors can help you with that, right? The second is on business development. They can introduce you to new customers, partners, new markets, and even new investors, right? This is crucial. This is them leveraging their network now, not just their expertise. The first one on filling knowledge gaps is about me leveraging my expertise. The second one about business development is about me leveraging my network now to get you into new places. And the third thing is about just being responsive. So when you're sending your investor update emails, when you're saying that you're having low days and actually the metrics aren't ticking how I thought they were, are those people there for you? Can you turn to them during the bad times? Are they responsive? Are they helpful? Emotionally, are they connected with you as a human, as a person beyond just the business, right? And this is what you need from people that you want to row in the same ship with you. You know, you're about to go on a long journey with these people. So you need to make sure that it's a relationship built on these fundamentals of understanding where the value exchange is going to be and to make sure that it's mutually beneficial for us both. That's a really, really interesting point to summarize as well, because there's so much in that and there's some great examples out there of, of how this has happened. So in terms of knowledge gaps, this could be something where if you've got also an engaged angel investor, if you're looking at building out your team and trying to interview more people, if your angel investor would do the second stage interviews to help you decide between two really great candidates where they've got a bit of more experience and say, you know what, that person, something about them smells funny. Mm. Not literally, but something's not quite right. Mm. That could be the extra piece of guidance you need to help build out your team and have the right people around you. So that's sharing that knowledge and sharing that wisdom. That's a great example. And an example, a, a specific example that I can even speak to is, you know, I had a friend that was uh, running their startup and they're non-technical. They don't have a technical background and they were hiring their first developer. 
So I can't write a line of code, but one of my good friends that I've worked with in the past um, is, a, is, a, is a head of development at Scale-Ups and he's done it for years. So he wrote a technical test and then he assessed that developer for technical talent and spotted gaps. And, and through that, that person didn't hire that developer. But you see what I'm saying there, that like the angel investor can even bring people to the front to say, I know you've got a gap there. I've got someone that can help you with that gap. Right. And that person's probably doing it because of the relationship currency that you have with them. They don't know your startup. Right. And there's, there's a, an actual example of like yeah. how things work in practice when people are adding value. And then like, on the extension of the business development side of it, this is particularly powerful. Are you going to have someone who's going to rep your brand, whatever you do? So uh, like a legacy example, of this, some of the people listening to this may be even too young to remember what FUBU was as a brand. But Fubu was a clothing brand out of the US, right? And um, they managed to sign LL Cool J. LL Cool J came on with them, but he also put some money in and got some equity out of the business. But he was wearing Fubu in every video. The guy was wearing Fubu when he was endorsing other brands. Like he did a, was it a rap he did for um, Adidas? He was in the Adidas advert and said Fubu. You need someone who's going to rep your brand and elevate and, and make it easier to do your marketing. Or if you wear clothes, can that person wear your clothes? Are they going to be out representing what you do? If you, if you do hair, will that person be there representing your brand and say, oh, someone needs hair. I'll take this one. This such and such is, is doing this. That's what an Asian investor can bring as well as they could potentially pick up the phone and say, hey, we've got this great product over here. Me and you went to uni together 25 years ago. I think you should have a look. So it can be from as small as being Absolutely. there to retweet everything that you post, or it can be as big as, um, picking up the phone to call their friends or people in their network to say this is a great product for you and here's why to get you into those meetings mm. and lastly it's about nurturing those long-term relationships and being engaged the last thing you want is to give someone a piece of your company and have to wait two weeks to get a response in an email for something that's urgent for you or they haven't even thought about they're like oh you really want to do this campaign that's great but i'm going to marbella i'm sorry mate you don't want that kind of relationship. Someone who you can pick up the phone to, and it may not always be immediate because life is busy, but can you get a text back that same day? Or is mm. it going to be an, even if it's to say, hey, I'm really busy right now, but I'm going to come to this. I've seen what you've sent me. Because that little courtesy is a massive indicator of how much someone cares. Yeah. And, and sometimes it could be strategic to have like maybe one armchair investor as you grow your company and have a more helpful people. Because like I've also seen the bad cases where, there's been an investor who has that the smallest amount of equity, but it's asking for the most amount of admin and reporting, you know, like your financials every month and X, Y, Z. And that's a bad situation to get in when it's draining, the relationship is draining. You're feeling like they're not contributing much, but they're asking for the most just so they can report to, to, their, to, the, to the management at their team, you know? So yeah, just, it's good to balance it off as well. So, you know, it's not bad having someone that's armchair that's literally hands off and just put money in and wants your usual updates. If someone's asking for too much with as little equity as possible, that's a bad situation. And the way to really manage and avoid that is to get references, speak to other people that they've invested in, speak to other founders and, and learn how their experience has been, especially during the bad times with that investor. Um, and that speaks volumes. Okay, we've come to the end of this section, but just to summarize what angel investors do to start off with, an angel investor can be anybody, anyone who's willing to put some capital into your business, whether it's a tech startup, whether it's a hair salon or butchers, anything, 
can be considered a, an angel investor and they can be anybody, so friends, family, colleagues, anyone at all. Now, in terms of how much angel investors can put in, the, the amount of money is unlimited. So it can be as little as a hundred pounds to maybe help you cover your Shopify website costs for a few months, or it could be as much as a hundred thousand pounds for you to invest in building out a team. It really does vary based on what your requirements are as an individual. And lastly, angel investors can bring more than money. They can bring a lot more than money to what you're doing. So it's important that you assess who you bring on, who you want to work with, and make sure fundamentally you've got a great relationship. Because the last thing you want to do is have money between two people in a bad relationship. Very, very bad idea. So in the next section, we're going to be breaking down angel investing even more and how you can position your business to be ready for angel investing. Stay tuned. If you have any questions or dilemmas that you'd like to have featured on our podcast or on our YouTube channel, go to blackmillennialmoney.com, click the contact page and send it to us. Names will be changed or kept anonymous unless you say otherwise. So in this section, we're still talking about making money. We're still talking about angel investing. And here we're breaking down how you as a business owner, you as an entrepreneur can make your business attractive to an angel investor and investors in the future because the logic is very similar. So to, we still have Andy Iam on the show. And first question, what are angel investors looking for in a business that they want to invest in? Mm, you know, this is one of the questions I love. <laughs> Firstly, it's really important for a founding team to understand what business they're building and why. And what I mean by that is angel investing uh, typically, okay, not always, but typically, if you're getting angel investment with the hope of going on to get VC investment, it means that I'm building a very high risk business with high rewards and I'm trying to grow to become a category winning company. Okay. This is less than 1% of companies in the world. VC is typically a great one, investing less than 1% of the deal flow that they see. Okay. So by doing that, you're literally saying, I'm going to build this type of business. That is why I require this type of funding. It's really important to be aware of that before you go on this journey. If not, and you're trying to build, let's say, an e-commerce business that can grow to you know, a million in profit or five million in profit, which is good, but it's terrible outcomes for a VC and they do not want to invest in that, you need to be at peace with that and seek the right type of funding that supports that type of business model. So it's really important to have that self-awareness before you go and, and go and find funding for your business. The second thing, do you want to you say Yeah, I'm just going to hop in on that point, just to yeah. break down some of, those, some of those stages. So for those of you who've been listening for a while, I'm a big fan of having that long-term vision, strategic alignment, what I want to be when I'm 80 years old, even though I'm in my 30s or 20s. This is the same thing for your business. What, is, what business would you like to be similar to in the future? If you're going down the Google and Facebook route, you are approaching your business in a different way. If you're, yeah. going, round, if you're going down the House of CB route, for example, or um, the Gymshark route, where they're very profitable businesses, but they're not global businesses in the same way that Facebook and Google are and WhatsApp and all of these other t- sort of tech giants sort of businesses are what is it that you want and how does the type of funding you need work 
so angel investors will come in for a certain part, but where Andy means VC is venture capitalists. So these are the big companies that will put in millions. Do you need to raise millions of pounds? Do you need to put yourself in a position to have millions of dollars, euros, yens coming into your business? If not, don't worry about it. You can have a great barbershop or butcher business that does several million a year. Like we're in the UK. I'm, I've been pocket watching a lot of businesses. Pax, the hair shop that every black person in, in London at least knows. And they're up and down the country. They have about 12 stores up and down the country. They do several million a year. It's a small business. You're never going to see it on the stock market. They're never going to be able to raise venture capital. But the owners are very, very happy with mm. the 30 years they've put in the game and the several millions they've made from us buying weaves and, and hair grease. And, and this is a great point because, like, I'm a big believer in optimizing for lifestyle design. You know, I have a three-year-old daughter. I've got a wife here. And I've been very intentional in consulting and building small businesses for myself that can allow me to have the lifestyle that I want to work three or four days a week from wherever in the world I want to work, you know, and earn enough money where, you know, I've got my house, I've got my investments, I've got everything I want in life. I can eat good food if I want. I can go on holidays if I want. That hasn't required millions for me to live that lifestyle. And I'm just acutely aware of that. So I'm not seeking to build a business that, that grows to millions. If anything, I'm actually limiting my aspirations on purpose, right? So the Angel Investing School is a great example of that. I run it twice a year in April and in September. I could run it six times a year. The demand is there. I don't want to because it will infringe on the lifestyle that I'm protecting. So like once you have that lifestyle that you want to build and you actually understand financially how much that lifestyle really costs, it's really interesting actually how you then think about actually what do I need to achieve financially to achieve that lifestyle? And usually like 90% of the times, that's less than, way, way less than a million. That's, that's often less than 250,000. And that's where we start really thinking about what kind of lifestyles we want to live. You know, so I think sometimes we need to abstract ourselves from, you know, the age of the entrepreneur and this rock star lifestyle and actually think like, how much does it cost to live the lifestyle that I want to live? And what are the different routes of me achieving that? Yeah, because honestly, some, if some people make 100 grand a year doing whatever, whether that's a full time job or having your own business, they're good. They got their BMW. They go on two to three holidays a year and no one in their house is hungry. It's not that deep. It doesn't, you don't need to be doing bust down Rolex life every weekend. You don't need, and if you wanted to, 100K will take you to Novakov for four or five birthdays a year. You will go to Marbella and, and pour champagne. You just can't do it every day. And that's fine. Who wants to go to Marbella every day? And you know, the, the, before I go on to the other criteria, mm. the, the key question that I always ask a lot of my founders and people that I men, mentor is, on your deathbed, why would you wait till then before you realize that when you're in that moment on your deathbed, you don't want your work phone, you don't want your smartphone, you don't want your laptop, you don't want your colleagues, you don't want your business, you don't want your investments, you want family and friends. Why wait till I'm 75 to, to discover that actually I want to spend more time with these people I love, doing the things that I love, like eating good food and going on great holidays and living a good life when I could do that now? Or I can bring that as close to now as possible. And, and that's what really reframed my thinking a few years ago when I really started optimizing more for lifestyle design than outsized outcomes for what reason, you know? And actually since then, as a consequence, I've actually had more influence in the work that I've been doing um, in leadership positions. Um, so yeah, it's funny how life works out sometimes when you reframe your perspective. Okay. 
Now, on that note, let's transition just a little bit because one of the things you said. But did you a... want me to cover my the other criteria? Because I know you know me; I'll drag you everywhere, Joseph. No, we're we're heading there right now. One of the things you said would be great criteria for business owners to have the answers to is understanding of their customer. Can you break that down for me? Absolutely. So as a product person, like I, I built my career in product management, which is really about, you know, reducing the risk of building something nobody wants and getting more confidence in, build, in, in creating something that's going to delight customers because it's something that they value. You know, so there's a lot of interview and a lot of experiments that you're running with customers to really validate your assumptions and make sure that you have certainty over what you're building. And that's really about obsessing over your customers and ensuring that you're building something that solves either a problem for your customers or meets a need that they have, right? And too many founders race to pursuing their ideas because they're biased and they're in love with their own ideas, but they need to learn how to abstract themselves, step back, and realize that you're not building that business to serve yourself, you're building it to serve customers. So what you really need to be doing is speaking to your customers early and often mm. to ensure that you're actually providing value to them with what you're creating and bringing to the market, right? So I always look for people that have deep knowledge of the problem that they're solving and deep knowledge of the customer that they're serving. Because in the end of the day, if you can really solve a problem for a customer well, that's going to lead to the most cheapest, most cost-effective form of marketing, which is word of mouth. Because people are going to tell other people, we saw it happen with WhatsApp and Instagram. There was no YouTube ads. There was no ads on the internet, no ads on the tube, no ads on TV. It was us telling each other because the product was that good. And that's what happens. And that's what we need to focus on, really building that in. Because when an investor looks at your business, one of the main things they're going to look at is whether you have traction, right? Whether you've got evidence month on month that, you're, that, that more and more customers want your product and keep on coming back to use your products, which is what we call retention. The fact that people keep on coming back to use it time and time again. Mm -hmm. The mistake that too many founders make is they focus too much on customer acquisition. Like actually, how can I put this paid ad out on the internet on Google ads or on Instagram to get someone signed up as a customer and they, they're signing them up to a leaky bucket. They're struggling to retain and keep that customer, which is where the real value is. That shows me that you know exactly who you're targeting and why you're targeting them. And that's why they're sticking around because you've mastered that art. So that's a really important thing to get your head around. And it relates to what I was saying before about selling and spending as much time obsessing about customers, not competition as possible. Okay. So on that customer understanding and validation piece, it's funny because I work in something similar. I work in innovation and a lot of the time I spend is talking to people about their problems because often you find businesses that are good ideas but it's not perfect and there's mm. things where it's like it hits and it just tears and mm. sometimes the example I like to use to people to to get their heads around this is if Andy tells me he's hungry right now and I produce a Big Mac Andy eats the Big Mac he may no longer be hungry but there's an issue there I don't know for example that Andy's a vegetarian so as much as a Big Mac would fix his problem, the definition of quality, i.e. the way in which Andy wants his problem solved, would probably be with a vegan wrap from Leon. That's what he wants. And when I give him the vegan wrap from Leon, he's going to bite my hand off. The Big Mac he might take and be like, uh, maybe, maybe not. And understanding what your end consumer really, really wants and how they want it is the key thing and on the low this applies to relationships 
So <laughs> some people, everyone wants love, but how do we want to mm-hmm. be loved? Mm, um, deep, bro. This is, this is one of the key things that defines a brand that has to spend tons of money on marketing and something that just bangs from day one. Something Absolutely. that just takes all the way off because it made the most sense. And Absolutely. it reminds me of an example of, of Lots, who was on the episode, he's been on episode five where we're talking about starting your own business. He started an eyelash brand as a man who doesn't wear eyelashes. Why? Because he had enough conversations with women and realized that there were some issues with them getting eyelashes. So he found a way of getting eyelashes cheaper and quickly. Where women are paying 30 pounds for a set of eyelashes, you can have a monthly subscription and pay 15 pounds to get five new eyelashes every single month in different shapes, different styles. Website's mm-hmm. called Latchbash, no, uh, no plug, no promo. But the point is, is that he understood a key customer problem. And in a lot of businesses, it's important that you have 200 conversations, 200 in-person customer interactions, whether that's a quiz, whether that's interviews, just to make sure that you're fully understanding what people are saying and showing them different versions of your product. Because that data that you're gathering is going to make you smarter and sharper when it comes to how you position your product and how you explain to people what it is. Because if people say, I'm hungry, you need to translate that and understand that I want a vegan wrap from Leon. You need to know what that customer means because sometimes they won't tell you explicitly. Mm. So we've spoken a lot about customer validation because it's super, super important. It's really important. And it's close to us both. But we also mentioned the team. And you said the team earlier in terms of um, them understanding what their long-term vision is for the business. Mm-hmm. But what about what characteristics and skills does the team need to have to be attractive to an angel investor? Yeah, I say uh, like 80% of the decision sometimes is made on the founding team, right? So like one of the things that you look for as an angel investor is are they coachable? It comes back to that relationship point again, like can I actually foster a relationship with me and how do they take on feedback from me and from others? Are they always dismissive and challenging and they don't want to take it on? If so, I'm probably not the right person to work with them, right? Another thing that I look for is and this is going to sound counterintuitive a little bit, but, you know, like great people can do things great for the, even if they're doing it for the first time. Okay. But at the same time, it's really good to see a signal of when someone has deep domain expertise or an access to a network for the problem that they actually want to solve. So if I've worked in money transfer services for 10 years and I'm about to start a remittance startup on paper, I get why that, like that person wants to start that business. However, like I said, great people can do things great for the first time. So there's certain people that can show that they have ability to learn fast, right? So I can gain that network in six months. I've gained that domain expertise in six months and it's showing because of the traction that I'm getting, right? So that one's a really important one. Like if someone has domain expertise or a network or the ability to learn fast and they show that there's evidence of that. Can you Another clarify one is, domain expertise? Cause it sounds. Domain expertise is like what I said with the money transfer services. Like I've worked in a certain area of a business for 10 years like finance you know in a money transfer service startup and now actually i want to start a startup that works with finance and money transfer okay right? so and that's i look a, on paper like i'm well placed to solve that problem because i understand it deeply because i've worked in that industry for so long and that's a nice little nugget there actually because a lot of people in terms of validation for the customers to understand problems whatever you do for a living now someone is paying you thousands of pounds every month and every year to do it if you get good at that, 
that is probably one of the first places you should look to start your business because you already understand the issues. You know why, how your business is maybe not taking care of all of its customers properly. But also you've got the credibility to an investor that you've worked in this industry, you understand it. So sometimes when people say chase your passion, it's very important, but your business may be the vehicle to your passion rather than your passion itself. So if you're an incredible HR professional right now, go go start something in HR and let the money from that fund your passion for snowboarding. Yeah, and don't and necessarily you know, start a snowboarding business. <laughs> it's one of the primary reasons why the average age of an entrepreneur is 42 because of that, because of that skin in the game. They even spend time in industry. Another thing is I love when founders can inspire followership. You know, so if you have worked in industry and you have left a company and you're inspiring people that you've worked with previously to come along this journey with you, those people must really enjoy working with you. That's a great sign that you can inspire followership, that people want to be around you because they, they, they actually associate you with success or someone that's willing to actually do things that are interesting and they want to work with you again, even given the high risk of this, the, the, that your startup might actually fail. Another person, thing that I've touched on before is that person's ability to really articulate the product simply and sell, right? And that's sell to customers, sell to potential partners, selling to investors that you want to get on to invest in your startup. That ability to, to articulate what you're doing and sell like, is really, really important. And it doesn't usually come on day one. It takes time and time of iterating and practicing and trying time and time again to really get the positioning right of the value that you're creating and delivering to the market. Okay. okay. You've mentioned traction a couple of times. Can you break down traction for me, but also how people can measure traction in their specific businesses? Yeah. So I, I touched a little bit on it earlier in terms of traction really being that you're able to show evidence over time that month for month you're having growing customers that are not only coming to use your service, but coming back to use your service time and time again. Right. So if I talk about, you know, six months of traction for a social, a social media startup, like, Instagram, initially, they didn't really make money from advertising because they had no advertising. It was actually about usage, like people coming back to the feed every day. You know, that was traction for them. But if I'm talking about something like a money transfer startup, it's actually in revenue. It's actually like, actually, or, or I could actually say is, is, is bookings. How many people are transacting with me to book money transfer services rather than revenue? Because actually the amount of times people are sending money with me time and time again is what I care about. Or with Airbnb, it's how many bookings are people making and how many hosts are putting um, uh, rental properties on the platform, right? Those are the two metrics that I would care if that was that type of business. So it's really important to understand what metrics matter to you at, um, depending on the type of business that you are, right? Sometimes we look, we look and Google for metrics. It's the wrong thing to do. You need to understand your business and understand what metrics govern what success looks like in your business and what traction looks like in your business. So often in pitch decks, I see people sharing the wrong metrics of traction, like how many signups they have. Signups is not traction necessarily for your type of business, you know? So it's really important. Like if I'm a newsletter, you know, my newsletter uh, uh, um, uh, uh, metrics is really about not the number of subscribers I have, I have just over under a thousand, but it's the open rates. It's the fact that 50% are open in this newsletter. And then it's also the click-through rates. How many people are clicking the things that I'm sharing in the newsletter? Because that shows me that what I'm presenting is quality to that, those people. They're the most engaged. They're opening and they're clicking and they're coming back every Monday to do the same again. So it's really important to understand those metrics and how they actually feed into the success of your business. 
and you've given me some ideas of metrics and I'm going to say them and then you can just let me know if these are the type of things that someone could really be looking for that will get angel investors interested in their business. So if you are, if you have a hair shop or a nail or, or a nail business, would measuring the number of people who actually book appointments, but then show up because you can have lots of people calling and lots of people booking, but not actually coming, but the number of people who book and then show up, is that a good metric to measure? Because the hardest thing to do is to get people in your business, right? Is that a good number? Yeah, and, and there I'll show the funnel, right? And I'll show the funnel of three different metrics. How many people book? How many people convert to actually show up 80%? And how many people that show up come back within two months again? You see? And that's what we care about. We're trying to get customers to that point where they keep coming back. Then like they're not only booking, but they come up and show up. And because they love the service, they're coming back time and time again. Then eventually, I want to know how many other people they've told referrals that have come and then come through the cycle again, right? And if they're doing well in referring people, I might want to incentivize them and say, so you know what, thanks for what you've done. I want to give you a free haircut because mm. you've referred so many good customers to me. Treat your customers well because they're the lifeblood of your business. Interesting. It's, it's funny that you say that because... Sometimes I've heard small businesses or businesses talk about, oh, we've had 10,000 customers this month. But what does that actually mean? Because are those 10,000 brand new customers who are never coming back again? Are, they, are 70% of those people customers that have come back in? Or they'll say, oh, we've had 10,000 customers. So, that's, so we've got 25% market share in the local area. Yeah, it's, uh, those aren't useful numbers and sometimes with market size and things like that talk about how market size is not as useful as it could be because people yeah. say oh there's 25 million customers available so that yeah. means we're good market size to me is a lazy and limited form of, of analysis right because vcs often ask to know how big a market size is going to be for a certain opportunity the truth is number one we, have, we can manipulate statistics to make any market seem huge. And we will as founders, because we know that's the story they want to hear. Number two, the most ambitious founders outgrow their initial market size. You know, Brian Chesky at Airbnb started off with renting homes. Now he's going into trips and experiences. It wasn't in his initial pitch deck. He didn't know who's going to grow into there, but the most ambitious founders do that. You know, if we look at Amazon and Jeff Bezos, he started off as a bookstore for everyone, then the everything store for everyone. On paper, he had no right to go and win in providing server services through AWS, which accounts for half of the operating profit today. He had no right to do Amazon Echo, you know, that's now in half of our homes. He has no right to do Kindle, you know, which a lot of us have subscribed to. But, but he's grown into different markets because the most ambitious founders do, you know. And sometimes it's not even naturally through, like, creating their own products. Right, sometimes through acquisition. Facebook arguably have done some of the most incredible acquisitions of our age with Instagram and WhatsApp, you know? Those are growth through acquisitions. And the interesting thing about Amazon and Facebook is because they're so bold and they're willing to take big risks, it also means they're willing to lose big too, but we forget the failures, right? So Facebook launched Home. Home was a big failure, we forgot about it. They acquired Oculus um, VR, Oculus Rift. Again, it's not being successful. It's been R&D for them. It's a huge failure on paper today. You know, if we look at Amazon, they launched the Amazon Fire Phone, which is a $160 million investment. A huge failure, but we forget about that. And that's the boldness that you want in a founder, that they're willing to take big swings and swing it out the park. 
as we say in baseball, right? You need people that are willing to take those risks, you know? And, but that's why market size is really irrelevant because the most ambitious have outgrown their initial markets. And that's an interesting point because you mentioned a lot of tech businesses, but I've seen this in real life where, um, so when I used to go to my barbers, I, I go love sometimes. That, I love that you said real life, by the way. Go on. <laughs> no, but it's like, it's like tech businesses, they can seem like they're different planets, right? Whereas on your high street, you can sort of see it in a different way. So when I had a much closer relationship with my barber, obviously, um, the hairline yeah. is what I used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> they've gone from being just a barber shop to my barber actually now sells beauty products related to hair care so he's in the beauty right. business now but out the, they they clicked and saw the opportunity that so many of their clients have tattoos so rather than actually learn how to do tattoos themselves they rented out the space in the back where people just used to chill out and, and eat chicken and chips to a tattoo business so now you come and get your hair cut and you hear that people are getting their tattoos in the back you've got a half sleeve already get the other one in the back those people in the back of the business are paying them rent. So the more customers they get to the barbershop, the more people they potentially bring to the tattoo business and the more that the tattoo business can guarantee the rent and subsidize their costs of being open. Now he's, he's in a beauty business through his hair products and he's in, actually in the property business by renting out a back room to a tattoo business. But this is how you can scale because he, when he was started cutting hair, he was 16. He's in his early 30s now. He never thought that he would be technically a, a landlord to the tattoo people. He never considered he would be selling men's beauty products. So these is how you can broaden beyond your initial market. So when you're saying there's 300 million people in the market, that doesn't really help you as much as you think. It's more about your plan and your engagement. But off the back of that, Andy, I've got a really key question for you that some people are going to be wondering after everything we've said, we've added, I'm sure there's lots of really useful information in there. But the key thing is, I'm looking at my business now, and we're doing pretty well. How do I know I'm ready for investment? Or do I even need an investment? What other ways can I grow without investing? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And you know, the first thing is really like, if you're able to generate sales from customers, just think about how you can just really use those, that revenue to reinvest back into your business's growth. Okay? So whether that's hiring someone new, sometimes that's training like learning something yourself so that you can grow your business, you know? So sometimes you need to think about these different levers that you can pull to grow, right? Sometimes, like, I've met entrepreneurs who are telling me that, you know, like beauty entrepreneurs, that they want to grow their business, they want to get investment, and then they don't even realize that you've got, like, about £5,000 worth of stock that's unsold. Go and sell that stock. Go and figure out how you can sell that stock and raise 5000 yourself through doing that. You know, there's certain working capital opportunity, um, there's certain uh, opportunities like in e-commerce, like the one that you ex- described earlier, where actually that fashion entrepreneur is, is, has so much demand, she needs some working capital as quick as possible to, in order to like uh, invest in manufacturing more dresses and sell into those customers that want those dresses, right? In that situation, you can get working capital loans. Like that's actually a thing. There's a type of loan that is literally a purchase order loan that says like, if you have proof that you have like, you know, this contract from Sainsbury's or these customers that want to buy, we will lend to you based off of that contract, you know? And there's certain angel investors that also do lending that are willing to lend to you based on the, like, evidence that you have demand that you just need help fulfilling, right? And the bounce back loan is another option that I mentioned earlier that you might want to leverage to help you grow. So it just depends on what type of business model you are, what stage your business is at, 
and what kind of capital is required to help your business grow. Like I described earlier, to raise from VC, you need to be a specific type of business that's going to be a category winner globally. Someone that wants to win and dominate in all markets like we're seeing TikTok doing right now. You know, like we see with Microsoft Word, you know, like someone that wants to be a global YouTube, global play and dominate, right? Not a lot of people can accept that truth that I want to build a business. I just don't want to build that, you know, or I'm, I want to build a business. I want it to be that. But the way my metrics are looking, I'm not on path to show evidence that I can have the potential to be that. And that's about self-awareness. And that's about, about you being honest with yourself. You know, there's no point telling ourselves this rhetoric of, you know, I want VC investment because it's the thing to do. Or I want to prove that, you know, as a black founder, I can gain VC investment. That's not a success. That's means to an end. What is more successful as a founder is for you to succeed at scale and for you to influence the people you have influence on by sharing those lessons, by, by each one teach one, helping others up the ladder, you know, being more accessible once you're in that position of success to share a lot of how you got here and how you can help others get here too. By you investing your wealth now in other founders that are along their journey, right? So there's so many ways for us to, to really think differently about success and how to succeed on this journey if we really just reframe our thinking and change our perspectives. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Andy, I am dropping the gems, dropping the gems. And off the back of that, there's one thing that really, that really stood out to me that a lot of people want to get rich from being in business and for sure you can. But one of the things that may be a key differentiator between your ability to grow your business or even attract investment is how long it's going to take you before you want to go and buy a Mercedes. Because, for example, if you, keep, if you want to pay yourself 20 grand to go buy a C-class Mercedes or something, could that 20 grand be used in a business to produce 200 grand next year and then you can buy as many as you want? And if you turn up to an angel investor in a C-class Mercedes asking for 10 grand, they're going to tell you to go sell your car. Or they're going to look at you like, this person, how serious are they if they haven't sold their car to ask me for 10 grand? So those are things to think about, about your readiness for investment, but also ways in which you can get, you can invest in yourself without actually having to take capital and something else that popped into my head there's a lot of people in the hair business right now but some people only do braids some people only do weaves and he was talking about investing in yourself how about you learn how to do the other and then you can actually broaden your customer base if you do nails can you do acrylic can you do shellac can you do other things or can you add a skill that's complementary so that that business in particular hair and beauty number one there's so much room for collaboration is ridiculous and that's a question they need to ask themselves secondly I would love to see more entrepreneurs um, move down the, the stack, like move into supply chain, move into sourcing, move into manufacturing, move into fulfillment. There's so many areas of e-commerce that are really interesting that, can, that, that, that are part of that ecosystem of running a hair care business, right? If you look at distribution and retail and what you said, PAX has like such dominance in, um, I guess, underrepresented neighborhoods where there's a, a high customer base that they can serve. They don't have enough competition from franchises that are doing the same. You know, there's so much opportunities actually beyond just developing the product of like the, the lashes or the, the shampoo for hair. And it'll be really interesting to see more entrepreneurs move down that supply chain stack a lot more and have more control 
over that because that's where the profits come from. That's where the margins get gained if you can really move along that. And I know I've just mentioned a lot, so you might want to break it down. No, but I'm going to throw something out there because there's opportunities in every space because if you're in the nail business, does it make sense for you to now potentially become a wholesaler or a supplier to other nail businesses? Because what that will give you is an opportunity to look at the landscape, but also it gives you an additional revenue stream. But then looking at established businesses like PAX, we all have problems with some of these hair shops we go to for a myriad of things, but a lot of the times it's product selection and knowing what products are good for you. So I'm going to throw this idea out there. It may be a terrible one or it may be just the idea that someone's been listening for. What stops you from starting a hair care shop or online hair care business that does 24 to 48 hour delivery? So that's essential. So it's more convenient than necessarily going to packs, but only specializes in 4C or 3C hair for people with a very specific need, maybe low porosity versus high porosity hair. Something really specific that is being underserved by these general stores. Because for example, Tesco is not the place you go to look for really if you want halal food. You go to the halal shop. There's a big business there. You don't go to Tesco for kosher food. You go to the kosher shop. There's a big business there. In black hair care, do we have something for people specifically with 4C hair or with skin? Do we have people specific, black people specifically with, with eczema? What products do they need? What things do they need? So that's my idea. That's what I'm throwing out there. So, someone take it, break it down, tell me it's crap or come up with something amazing. But to summarize this section, angel investors are looking for some key characteristics in you as a person when it comes to securing investment in your team. So do you understand what the customers want, what they need? Can you show that customers are coming back to your business consistently? Do you and the people in the business, you as a solo entrepreneur or you as a team of entrepreneurs, do you have the skills required to make this business work? Can you solve problems? Are you willing to learn? Are you always pushing back? on new ideas. Also, what type of business are you trying to build? What's your long-term vision for this? Are you trying to be a global domination business? Or are you trying to be a great business for a small group of people and that's okay? And that might be a legacy business that you pass on to your children or to your employees and that's okay. I'll tell you for a fact, Pax is in the second or third generation now. The person that started Pax is dead and gone. His grandchildren are enjoying and they make several million a year. Google it. It's available, company's house, go have a look. They have money in the bank. And it's a small business, but it's a great business for 15 to 20 people. It's not a business necessarily that's ever going to compete with Google, but it's not trying to. And that's okay, you can do the same. But then also understanding that there's multiple ways you can fund your business. You don't necessarily need to take investment. You can actually just reallocate the capital within your business, aka delay the Mercedes purchase. Or you can seek alternative routes of funding like C-bills or invoice finance, which you can Google and break down. Like I said, it's a pen and paper episode. Take these notes and go and ask everyone's best friend, Google. And one of the last things I'd love to mention, actually, that I did mention before, but, but it's really important, is that like, I'm a firm believer of people before profits. And it's really interesting when I ask founders, what would their employees say about them? And then I actually go and speak to their employees and I hear what they say about them. And sometimes there's a mismatch and that's a problem because you have to treat your people well. I talked about nurturing relationships and long-term relationships with your investors. It's the same with your people. You need to treat your people well because people talk and bad experiences spread quicker than good ones. 
So you need to you need someone that can lead a company and treat those people well. I've not invested in businesses where I've heard before that they didn't treat their employees well. And those businesses have gone on to do well, but it's not right for me because it's important to treat your people well. Okay. Now in the next section, we're going to be giving you a quick tip and breaking down the next steps for those of you who really want to attract angel investors and position your business for long-term success. You may not know this, but we have a Patreon page. Patreon is a platform that makes it super easy for people to support creators. Here at Black Millennial Money, our mission is to reach millions of people around the world with life-changing financial information, and you can be part of that. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Black Millennial Money or click the link in the description to sign up and start supporting us today. So Andy, we've covered a hell of a lot in this episode. We've gone through so many different things, but the people still want some more value from us. What is the quick tip for this week's episode for people who are looking at securing angel investment? Ideas are overrated and execution is undervalued. Okay. And what I mean by that is, you know, you need to let success speak for yourself. Like, are you able to sell? Are you able to, to grow your revenue? Are you able to do all of this? And are you willing to, even if you don't get investment? Because that's the real testament that you're in this for the long run. And usually those type of people are in servitude to something bigger than themselves. They're not doing this because they want to become an entrepreneur. They're doing this because they're in service to a mission and a cause that's calling them because it's bigger than them. It's about serving others. Okay. Now, Andy said that in a really, really poetic and eloquent way, but I'm going to summarize it in a really direct way. Do the work and everyone wants to invest in it. If you could have invested in Facebook 20, 20 years ago, you would do it knowing how they turned out. But the difference is they went and did the work. As soon as, as, soon as you've, you've got money coming in, everyone wants to know your name. If you're still trying to figure it out, it's so much harder. Absolutely. And the most sought out of sought after founders are the ones that don't actually go out looking for the investors. The investors come inbound because, it, because word spreads and other founders are telling them about it because it's such a hot opportunity and a great one that they don't want to miss out on. And that's what the position you want to be in where you have to pick of who you want to be on your cap table, who you want to gain investment from. Okay, you heard it here. Make yourself a hot opportunity and you won't have to look for investors. Andy, what are the next steps that everyone listening to this episode can do right now to make their businesses ready for investment? Understand what type of business you are. And if you are going down that angel and VC track, understand the right metrics that, that they want to look for when it comes to traction. Okay. Secondly, build relationships and be visible in your industry before even trying to gain investment. So if you do want to nurture relationships with angel investors, do it six or 12 months before you even think about raising. You want to nurture relationships, keep people updated, you know, with monthly update emails on your, on your progress, your challenges and your asks so that you can form a relationship with people and it's less transactional if you need to raise from them, you know? And the third thing is like great products sell themselves, right? Like if I produce a great product experience to customers because I understand the problem I'm solving for this customer base, they're going to tell others. And that's the cheapest form of marketing, not paid ads in producing a great experience for them and they them being willing to tell others because of that. So focus on great product experiences from registration and onboarding through to actual experiences within the product. Okay. Now, just breaking down those next steps, summarizing it. So understanding what the right numbers you should be focusing on in your business are. It's not always sales and profit because sometimes 
money is less important than showing potential for growth for our people keep coming back so you may be struggling to get tons of new customers but if you've got a hundred good ones and they keep coming and spending more money spending more money spending more money you're on to something and then building relationships in the environment that you're in in the business area that you're in if you're an unknown no one is looking for you. No one is going to help you because you will need to start building a rapport and relationship before you can actually access capital. So make sure you're visible within your industry. That's posting on LinkedIn. That's going to events. That's going on these. Everything is online. There's no excuse to not be on a webinar right now or on a seminar or trying to speak or trying to engage in the community. And thirdly, make a great product, make a great product experience. If you're a baker and someone bites into your food and it's like manna from heaven, or they're, they're sitting here contemplating, how's this gonna affect my credit score if I spend two grand on cupcakes? You won't ever, ever, ever need to do marketing. Make sure the product is good, make sure the way in which your customers get the product is even better. We've all ordered the Uber Eats and then the, we opened the box and the, the burger was upside down, the lettuce was, was spilled outside of it. That's not the customer experience we want. We want the perfect unboxing moment. We want that perfect delivery when we get it, it's like, this is special, this means something. So make sure you focus on that. So Andy, we've come to the end of the episode. <sighs> a lot of talking, a lot of talking. <laughs> this is a pen and paper episode right down to the T, right down to the very you've, end. You've been saying that from the beginning. Ah, the people are listening. They want to get in touch with Mr. Andy Ayim. The man himself, investor extraordinaire, product manager extraordinaire, product builder. How can they do that? Firstly, if they have any questions, comments, they enjoy this episode, they want to know more, they've got questions that relate to them, they need to let my man Joseph know so that he can try and get me back on the show so we can have that conversation. That's first and foremost. You know, you can check out me and everything I am when it comes to my social links and doing online on andyim.com. If you really love what you've heard, I have a month, uh, a weekly newsletter that you can sign up to on my website. And then to find out more about the Angel Investing School, if you're interest, interested in getting started with investing yourself, or you want to really activate someone in your network to learn how to angel invest, then head over to angelinvestingschool.com. Okay, so you heard it. Give me the feedback. If you want Andy back on the show, if you want to do a Q&A episode, we'll get him back on. But if you guys don't ask me nothing, he ain't coming back. No, I'm joking. He will be back. But he may not be answering your specific question if you don't send it over. If you want to send over any questions or dilemmas, head over to blackmillennialmoney.com and click the contact link. Follow us on all of our socials. That's Black Millennial Money Podcast on all the socials. So BMM Pod on Instagram, BMM Global on Twitter, and anywhere else, just type in Black Millennial Money and you'll find us. Like, subscribe, and share. And as always, join the movement. Follow us on Patreon, but go and contribute. That's blackmillennialmoney.com forward slash Patreon on the website. Click and start supporting the movement. We're going to see you next week with a Keep Money episode. And if you've enjoyed the value here, make sure you tell a friend to tell a friend. It's time to subscribe and sign up to Black Millennial Money. This is Black Millennial Money. This is Black Millennial Money, boy. This is Black Millennial Money. 